Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello listeners, welcome to the Tax Wrap Podcast, episode 167. I'm Steve Burnham, and uh, today, in the first segment of our Tax Wrap Podcast, I'm going to be talking to Gabriella Russo, who is uh, an SMSF specialist, and does a lot of work for Tax and Super Australia, doing webinars and a lot of other things. Uh, Now, we're going to be talking about the transfer balance uh, report that every SMSF must uh, lodge. Uh, There's been a few developments. Um, some things we thought we knew we actually don't know because there's been changes made by the ATO. So I, um, I gave Gab- Gabby a call and she explains it all to us and um, have a listen. Hello Gabby, Steve Burnham calling. Oh, hi, good morning Steve. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast to discuss a few issues related to the new event-based reporting for yeah. self-managed superannuation funds. Yeah, it's got a lot of people who are interested. So what can you tell us about it? Yes, so what I'm referring here is the reporting to the ATO for the transfer balance cap purposes. So we we all know by now that from 1st of July 17, members are subject to the 1.6 million transfer balance cap. Uh, we know that that was designed to limit the amount of super that can, that, uh, can be transferred into a tax-free retirement phase account. Yeah, yeah. So what's going to happen, the ATO will uh, monitor these amounts through the individual transfer balance account. Uh, and because of that, each individual with a retirement phase income would actually end up with their own individual transfer balance account. Right. And because of that, obviously, all funds, including self-managed super funds, with at least a member in receipt of a retirement phase pension, they would be required to report to the ATO via a transfer balance account report if they have events that would impact their member's account. Okay, so events meaning what, uh, Gabby? Yeah. Is it trans- certain transactions or what sort of events are we looking at? Uh, yes, no, that, that's a very good question. Um, the most common events that will need to be reported via the uh, transfer balance account report. Uh, It's known as a TBR report, so I'm probably going to mention that a few times. Okay, TBR, transfer balance report, yep. TBR, yes, so it it is actually in relation to this transfer balance account report that uh, now everybody keeps talking about and obviously we need to to clarify a few things about that. So the the most events that would have to be reported would be the pensions, which were in the retirement phase on 30th of June 17. Right. And any events that happen after 1st of July 17, such as new pensions that would commence after that date, that would include that benefit pensions and also transition to retirement pensions that are converted to retirement phase. Oh, yeah. We did have a chat about the conversion to retirement phase in our previous podcast. That's right. So I'm sure you, you remember a few things that we discussed in that respect. Also, other events that are very common that would have to be reported um, would be commutations from a pension account. I'm talking here about 
a partial commutation and also full commutation. So this would be the main events that members would have to, to report right. to the ATO. So uh, because of uh, those requirements now, uh, people have to make sure that they report them on time. So then the ATO would be able to keep track of what they have um, um, transferred into retirement phase. Um, so if they don't do that, they would be penalized and they would also end up with an excess transfer balance. Um, yeah, yeah. And, it, and you really have to keep an eye on it to not to go over the cap as well, the 1.6. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. So that would definitely be uh, a problem that uh, members with retirement phase uh, income streams would have to address at some point in time. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I would like to clarify first is the fact that even though reporting requirements commence for all self-managed funds from 1st of July 2018, so in um, a month and a half yep, or so. it's coming up quickly. Coming up very quickly, yeah. fast approaching. What I wanted to mention, though, is that self-managed funds that were paying retirement phase pensions at 30th of June 17 would actually need to complete and lodge a T-bar report on and before 1st of July 18. So it's happening right now. Ah. So it's not going to be after 1st of July 18. This is something that uh, those funds, those self-managed funds would have to address um, by 1st of July 18. Really? So by, by June 30 yes. then? Exactly. Oh, gosh. And uh, the issue that um, uh, many people uh, have at the moment, they, they think that, oh, well, if I have a pension that uh, has a value below the 1 million threshold, I'm going to talk about that later on. Okay. I don't need to report anything. Well, that is not the case. So you would need to report those pensions regardless of their size. So practically what it means, if I have an account-based pension with, let's say, a value of 200000 right. on 30th of June 17, I will need to report it via this form before the end of the current financial year. So well, that is one thing that everybody needs to be that's amazing. clear so, about. Yeah, so really any, any practitioner listening out there that has clients that may fit this bill, you better warn them. Today I would like to talk about something new. We learned from the ATO about the new transfer balance account reports. Uh, initially, news came through that self-managed funds were going to be required to report both a member's 30th of June 17 pension and accumulation phase values. Oh, okay. the ATO, yep, to ascertain the member's total superannuation balance is the 30th of June 17. Right. So apparently um, that was required simply because, as we know, the initial form, the form for the 2017 annual return, does not uh, provide a breakdown between the pension and the accumulation accounts. No, no, that's right. So the ATO initially said, yes, you, if you had a pension, we would also require that accumulation value to be reported. Is, it, is this on on the, on the, all on the T-bar account? Okay, a report on a form. T-bar, yes. Yep. And obviously this was a surprise to those in the industry uh, who were under the impression that only the member's pension value would yeah. need to be reported on mm. the T-bar. Uh, it was actually consistent with everything the ATO said up to that point. Uh, it was uh, also... Um, consistent with the information that they had on their website. Right, yep. So hence the reason why that news came as such a surprise to everybody. Mm. 
However, the good news is that following industry consultations, the ATO has revisited this approach and will now only require a member's 30th of June 17 accumulation face value to be reported when the member is in receipt of a cap defined benefit pension okay. or a flexi pension from the fund. So this is a bit confusing for people who don't uh, um, actually are familiarized with the new terms in the legislation. Um, just quickly, I would like to mention that a cap defined benefit income stream actually includes any lifetime pension or life expectancy pensions and also market link pensions that were in existence as of 30th of June 17th. So okay. In a self-managed fund, you can still have market link pensions that you can start after 1st of July 17th. Yep. However, any lifetime pensions or life expectancy that you may find in a self-managed fund, there were old legacy pensions that started years ago. I think it was 2015 when the they actually stop providing this type of pensions to a self-managed fund. So right. you're not going to find too many members with these types of pensions. However, uh, the problem is that they would be required to report both the pension and the accumulation values um, in, in these uh, circumstances. So they would have to, uh, to take this um, uh, approach into into account. Okay. So People who have already reported the values of those pensions to the ATO, so they would have to re-report the accumulation value as well. And um, the reason why the ATO has um, chosen to to go about this uh, in this way is that we... uh, we obviously uh, know that uh, this type of pension would have a special value. So this special value, it doesn't necessarily match the account balance of those pensions. So like, for instance, for a lifetime pension, you would have the annual amount multiplied by 16. For a life expectancy or a market link pension, yep. the special value would be the annual retirement multiplied by the remaining term. So especially for a market link pension. We do have an account balance that we can ascertain for that pension. However, that is not the value that needs to be reported to the ATO. So hence the reason the the reporting now would have to include the accumulation um, phase value of uh, those members to enable the ATO to calculate the total superannuation balance in the year 2017 for those people. So uh, this is obviously something that uh, would have to be to be taken into into account. Another thing I wanted to mention here is that when we talk about the accumulation phase value, this is actually the amount of super benefits that would become payable if the client uh, voluntarily stopped the interest at a particular time. Okay. And when we talk about accumulation phase value, it's actually net of uh, exit and administration fees payable on accessing the uh, the superannuation interest. Okay. And sometimes it can actually be different from the amount that you report on the um, on the annual return. Yeah. So when you lodge the SMSF annual return, this um, um, accumulation phase value may actually be different from the one that you you have on is, annual return. And is that because of those fees? Yes, because of those fees, right. that's exactly right. right. So, um, again, we can see why the ATO has chosen for these particular members to have uh, this additional reporting, currently, you know, because they don't have that split and you can't 
um, you can't provide additional information or valuable return as it is, yeah. then they, uh, the only way that they can ascertain the total superannuation balance correctly would be from the T-bar, from the uh, report that would show both figures, not only the value of their pension, but also the value of their accumulation phase. Right, okay, so yep. That would be uh, one thing that um, uh, is going to create a bit of an issue. However, um, this is actually good news for, um, it's a good outcome for the SMSF industry, especially for the SMSF trustees who only have the account-based pensions. Oh, in yeah. Advance. So they've already lodged the T-bars yep. without reporting the uh, uh, accumulation pension values, so at least they don't have to re-report. However, uh, as I said before, uh, certain types of uh, SMSF members, they would still need to, to report that value and they would have to uh, re-report it. So they would yep. have to make sure that they would uh, complete a new T-bar report. Apparently, this value would have to, the accumulation value would have to be reported at question 15 on okay. the T-bar. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, what the APO has also indicated is that um, whilst those pension values uh, as of 30th of June 17 would have to be reported by 1st of July 18, apparently the accumulation pension value as of 30th of June 17 is due by 8th of September 2018. Oh, okay. So a bit of time. A little bit of time, yeah. Yep. Yes, a little bit of time uh, given for, for people to complete the T-bar and report it to the ATO. That's around the time when the, um, when uh, these uh, figures will be taken into account and when the ATO is going to ascertain everyone's uh, uh, total superannuation yeah, yeah. balance. Uh, and speaking of the total super balance, um, not sure if... Uh, um, everybody is aware of, but this is the sort of information that you are going to be able to access on uh, MyGov account. Oh, okay. Yes, so everyone who's got access to the MyGov account would be able to identify the um, total separation balance that uh, the ATO is going to calculate. Right, okay. For them, so uh, it is a good way to double check to make sure that the ATO has got the right information. So, if there is anything that doesn't look right, such as amounts being doubled up yep, or yep. Um, overstated or understated, then you can contact the ATO and rectify the situation. Okay, so it's a good good place to check anyway if you're going about it. it. Go it and have is. a look. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Yep. Um, another thing I want to mention uh, is that the ATO has um, updated web its uh, website in the meantime to clear up the confusion. Oh, good. They provide additional information on how to complete the T-bar, including the specific scenarios for the 30th of June 17, yep. requiring the reporting of the accumulation phase value right. of an SMSF member. Yep. So we do have a bit more information um, uh, now that we can use. Yeah, that's so good. We, yes, I'm that's glad they caught up. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it's been uh, an issue that uh, now has uh, has been rectified. Right. Yeah. So the other thing that uh, has been causing a lot of confusion uh, in relation to this uh, T-bar reporting is in relation to the frequency of reporting for self-managed funds of these um, uh, transfer balance cap events that occur after the 1st of July 17. So we focus on what happened as a 
as a 30th of June 17. Yep. Now we talk about those events that would affect the transfer balance cap that occur after the 1st of July 17. So Could, Yeah, because it's a case, case of reporting each event as it happens, is that the... Yes, you would have to report it and um, the ATO has given self-managed funds uh, some administrative concessions. So first of all, they would say all events reported after, all events that occur after 1st of July 17 would have to be reported after 1st of July 18. So you really have a year that you have to get your head around what you need to do. However, once um, we pass 1st of July 18, there will be self-managed funds that would have annual reporting requirements and other funds would have quarterly reporting requirements. Uh, yep, and that yep. is going to be dependent on the total superannuation balance of each member in the fund. So practically what it is, self-managed funds whose members' total superannuation balance are less than one million, mm -hmm. they can choose to report these events uh, annually. Yep. And it would be at the same time they lodge the SMSF annual return. So that is a pretty good concession for a fund who doesn't really have to worry about reporting these events during the year. So yeah, they would do it at the time when they lodge the returns. So that's pretty good. Yep. And then the ones, the self-managed funds with members whose total superannuation balances are one million or more, they will have to report those events between 28 days after the end of the quarter in which this event occurs. Okay. So now, yeah. The problem is, how do you ascertain whether you are on a quarterly or on a, or on an annual basis? It's been a bit of confusion here. So what I would like to clarify uh, next would be um, in respect to, to this frequency of reporting for, for each self-managed fund. So firstly, it is important to note that self-managed funds are only required to assess the reporting frequency in relation to the 1 million threshold once, so you only do it once. What? It's either at 30th of June 17, when the self-managed fund has at least a member with a pre-existing pension, or at 30th of June, immediately before the year in which the first member of the fund commences their first pension. Oh gosh, so, you, so you've, got to be, you've got to be planning to go on to the pension phase yes. and report before it happens. Is that... uh, yeah, so practically oh. what it is, um, for instance, um, if, um, let's say I have a total superannuation balance of 1.3 million as the 30th of June 18, yep. let's assume I meet a condition of release with nil cash in restrictions, and I intend to start an account-based pension with that amount on 1st of July 18. Okay? okay. So yep. I am, let's assume, let's assume I'm the only member of the fund and I have no other superannuation interest. So all I have is this 1.3 million as a 30th of June 18 in my self-managed fund. Right. Now, because my balance, my total superannuation balance as a 30th of June 18 is more than 1 million, I will only be required to report my transfer balance cap events on a quarter. I, I will have, have to report it on a quarterly basis right. because I had more than 1 million on 30th of June. So because of the commencement of the pension being a reportable event, I will need to report that pension to the ATO via the T-bar no later than 28th of October 2018. Right. Okay? 
So if my balance was below that 1 million, I would have had to report it by the time that I'm actually lodging the 2018 return for my fund. I would have obviously been given more time uh, to report that uh, pension. However, what is important here to note is that once the reporting frequency has been determined, it will not change. So that actually means that uh, the fund will not move between annual and quarterly reporting, and this is regardless of fluctuations of any members' balances, yeah. of whether a new pension is commenced. Like, for instance, when we talk about um, a balance of 1.3 as the 30th of June 18, let's say in a few years' time my balance goes below the 1 million threshold. We've well, been using it up and, and all that, yeah. Yeah, so, and let's say later in the next financial year, I'm thinking about partially commuting my pension, that again, it's an event that I need to report to the ATO, mm. but even though my balance in the year before I did that commutation was reduced below the 1 million threshold, threshold yep. I still go by the balance that I have just before I started my own pension, which required me to have this reporting on a quarterly basis. So hmm. this would always be the same. So even though my balance goes below the one million threshold in the next financial year and I have a re- an event to report to the ATO, that event will still have to be reported on a quarterly basis. So you're stuck with it, basically, with that yeah, reporting re- requirement. So I'm not sure if it makes any sense, but mm. that's the way you, you have to um, look at those reporting requirements and... Uh, in one respect, it's a good thing because you only have to ascertain that once. I suppose. But then at the same time, um, you really have to be careful. And especially as an administrator, you, you're probably going to end up with um, some funds on a quarterly basis, some funds on an annual basis. And you have to have good systems in place to be able to identify which funds would need to report when, on a quarterly yeah. basis and then keep track of that so then you don't... Um, delay on reporting this in the next financial year. Finance. I suppose that, that would be the general pattern, I'd, I'd imagine, because you use up some yeah. funds, etc. I can't imagine anyone perhaps being under the million-dollar threshold uh, and reporting Look, that I'm, annually and then moving to the qu- quarterly requirement. I, I can't sort of see that happening. But, uh, well, it could if you have a killer investment and you make a big return, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yes, that, that's right. I mean, there is uh, definitely a concern amongst the professionals who... Uh, are looking after self-managed funds and from what I understand there are some businesses that would actually consider having everyone on a quarterly reporting basis you know anyway you need to report it on an annual basis there is nothing that stops you to report it earlier so rather than having to keep track of um, funds that would need to report on an annual basis versus the one on a quarterly basis, they feel like, all right, we're going to have systems in place that would allow us to identify these transfer balance cap events for each of our clients, and we will report them on a quarterly basis regardless. That's a good idea. Yes, I Mm. mean, you obviously need to have the resources in place. You have to make sure that it doesn't disturb your daily uh, businesses. Yeah, of course, yeah you would have an additional thing to do for your clients. So I even heard about some professionals considering uh, charging clients for these things. Many of them would say, well, this is going to be an additional service that we are happy to provide. Yeah. Um, and we're just going to have good 
software in place and it's not going to disrupt the daily activity of the uh, interactions with the clients yeah yes so uh, obviously clients don't like to pay more for for this service but it is quite a bit to look into as i said the form has uh, um, a few pages at the moment you know you you if you uh, download that form you'd have to complete a few pages to indicate the fund details, the members details, the yep. events details. That so it's quite a bit of work to do. So unless you have good a good software that will be able to, um, you know, put this information on the form, so populate all this information straight into a form that you can download and then lodge with the ATO, that would be ideal. So that you're not going to have too much time no. to spend on reporting requirements but this is something that is going to affect everybody it is it's a bit of an ask especially especially if you've got you know quite a a number of clients in this situation which a lot of people do um Mm. it is a bit of an ask gosh yes it is Mm. it is absolutely so it is going to be um important to 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 have all these um uh, procedures in place to make sure that you do the right thing for your client yeah exactly Another thing, Steve, that I wanted to mention, okay, yep. for, for clients that have this um, annual reporting uh, that would allow them to do to lodge the TBR reports at the same time that they lodge the annual return, what I wanted to mention is that this is in addition to uh, the reporting requirements when lodging the, the annual return. So basically oh, wow. what it means, you need to lodge your annual return uh, as per usual, yep, so yep. that is one thing. Doesn't have anything to do with reporting for TBR purposes, for right. TBC purposes. So on top of that uh, form, you would also need to complete a TBR form yep. and report it to the ATO separate, separately. Because yeah, people yep. thought that well, I only have to do it once when I lodge my annual return. It doesn't mean that you do it at the same time when you lodge your annual return. It's just the timing. It's the time frame that you have that would allow you to do it uh, at the the time when you lodge it, but you would still need to complete that form and lodge it. Yeah, so it's on on top, not just on top as in, quote, paperwork, but the the timing, as you said, uh, can be different too, which is a bit of a hassle. Um, oh, no, good absolutely. point. Well, that's, that's very important that the ATO gets their guidance on the T-bar reporting out soon. Um, it, it, yeah. Yes, we are hoping that that is going to, to happen soon. Uh, it um, uh, came out about 10 days ago, I think it was around just... Um, just before the budget night, I think we started uh, hearing these sort of uh, uh, rumors that oh, right. this is what the ATO wants people to do. And uh, it's been uh, a few things that uh, uh, have been communicated, but obviously we do not have the ATO's final position on that. So we're no. going to have to wait and see. Oh, I'm glad we t- spoke to you today then, Gabby, to get all these warnings yeah. and uh, get uh, trustees on the lookout for the instructions, which we will provide as they come to hand. Absolutely, right. Steve. Thanks very much for your time, Gabby. Thank you very much for having me, Steve. Okay, that was Gabriella Russo talking about some very important issues that every SMSF trustee should know about, about the transfer balance report and the uh, twists and turns and conundrums that have happened uh, since last we uh, visited this uh, uh, topic. Uh, All right, um, stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
Okay, um, and I'm back uh, with Tax Rap Podcast episode 167 continued uh, with David Ebden this time. Hi, David. Hello, Steve. Hello, listeners. Um, now, we're going to talk, David, apparently you have nominated to talk about types of withholding. Yeah, I just thought this would be something that would be handy for uh, for us all to have a little bit of revision on, given yep. the uh, year ends coming up. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, basically, um, any entity must withhold an amount from salary, wages, commission, bonuses, or allowances, um, anything that it pays to an individual as an employee, something must be withheld from. Yeah, which is kind of like paying tax by instalments. Yeah, correct. Always reminds me. Correct. Um, so, yeah, as you say, Steve, this applies to um, common law employees only. Um, under the PAYG withholding system, a payer is only required to deduct amounts which is paid to an employee. Okay. So right. um, payments made to contractors are only subject to PAYG withholding where they specifically fall under one of the payment types uh, called pa- for PAYG withholding. Okay. So there's different payments. Well, how, how, did you say an employee or a contractor? Yes. So you've got to know the difference. Yes, correct. Um, a person is an employee if work is performed under the direction and control of the owner or operator right. of the principal contractor. Uh, this type of contractual relationship that exists is that of a contract of service. This relationship differs from that with the independent contractor, which involves a contract for services. Okay. So it's the of and the for, which Just, is the... Okay, so for specific services that they contract to, to supply or complete. Yeah, correct, okay. correct. Yeah. And in order to determine if there is a PAYG withholding obligation yep. for the payment to the employees, the payer must first consider the various indicators in order to distinguish whether the contractual relationship is a contract of service or a contract for service. Mm. It's just something you, you think is pretty plain, but um, mm. well, there, so there are tests? Yes, okay. yes, there most certainly are. There's uh, two major tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first would be the control test, um, and yeah, this is basically the most important factor in determining whether they are an employee or a contractor. What's the c- control test? Yep, the control okay. test. Yep. Um, However, just following on from what I said, um, whilst it is an important uh, determinant of an employment relationship, it is not the sole indicator, which right. is why there's other tests which we'll come on to shortly. Right. Um, other indicators should also be taken into consideration in order to determine whether the employment relationship is that of an employee or an independent contractor. Okay. Yep. So, for example, is there a... Um, I suppose, for lack of a better phrase, a master-servant relationship in place. Um, The right to control how, where, when and who is to carry out the work in question. Uh, That's something that differs from an employee and a contractor. Yep, okay. And um, the greater the obligation on the person performing the work to obey the orders of the principal on how the work is to be done... Therefore, the, the implication is greater. This is to be, it's more of an employee relationship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And the second test is the integration test. And this would be used to decide if the person is performing services as an employee mm-hmm. or as a person in business on his or her own account. Okay. A, a person could be caught in this test, for example, if the relationship is a continuing one or the individual's activities are restricted to providing services to one principal. Right. Or maybe if the, um, I don't know, if the individual's activities are so inextricably integrated in the principal's business activities that any benefit arising from the individual's efforts would benefit the principal. Okay, yep. 
right, as opposed to having a set job, come in, do that, go away, thank you very much, here's Correct. some money. Okay. Correct. All right, so um, what about the other tests you were talking about? Yeah, there's uh, four or five that aren't as uh, onerous. Yep. Uh, for example, there's the results test. Um, so if the substance of the contract is to achieve a specified result, right. it is more likely that the person is an independent contractor. Uh, there's uh, the delegation or subcontracting of work. So there's a strong indication that if the person is an independent contractor, the person is able to delegate or subcontract the work and is responsible in remunerating that replacement worker. Oh, right. Yep. Uh, risk. Um, generally, the independent contractors will bear more risk compared to that of an employee. And, um, yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and yeah, so on and so forth. You know, an individual who provides their own tools and equipment and incurs oh, expenses yeah. is more likely to be a contractor. Okay. Yeah, so it's just those kind of things that you need to look at to weigh up whether yep. they are an employee or a contractor. So that if you're challenged on it, you can say, oh, no, this is, I decided this and I decided it was like hmm. that. Okay, that's fine. Hmm. And so um, the withholding, this withholding system... Mm-hmm. Are there any payments not uh, the, any payments excluded? Yeah, yeah, there are a few actually, Steve. Um, okay. uh, cash living away from home allowance, on which the employer is liable to pay FBT, is uh, excluded. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, income which is derived by a person through a business or professional practice, which doesn't constitute salary or wages. Okay, yeah. Uh, payments to companies, trusts, partnerships, associations, right. and other, other entities, yeah, other bodies, yeah. <coughs> right. Um, Interestingly, payments made by householders for occasional services to persons not regarded as employees, such as plumbers and electricians. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, of course, you wouldn't withhold in the normal course of yep. uh, those activities. Yep. yep. Okay. Um, what, now, um, tell me something about um, second jobs, things like bonuses or overtime. I mean, how was that dealt with? Yeah, sure. So um, if we take the second job example first. Yep. Um, a resident employee um, is entitled to claim the tax-free threshold for only one job, just right. one job. Uh, second and subsequent jobs are taxed at the rates with uh, no tax-free threshold, yep. so they're paying tax from the very first dollar. Um, so in these circumstances, it is generally advisable to claim the general exemption or the tax-free threshold yep. for the ongoing job with the highest amount of remuneration. Okay. So that's the one where the most tax is being withheld. Okay, yep, all right. Oh, look, one thing, I'm, just to, I'm not diverting, but this is easy within the realm, so mm-hmm. bear with me. Um, uh, a good friend of the family grows grapes up in Mildura. It's irrigated, it's a big farm, and he, um, he employs people on a temporary basis, like you know, working holiday makers to pick the, pick the grapes. Oh, yep. Yep. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> he... Um, had a good year last year. Anyway, um, when it comes to working holiday makers, mm-hmm. what, um, how does the withholding system um, apply there? So most people who come to Australia for a working holiday yep. or to visit uh, foreign residents for tax purposes. Yep. So uh, the two most common visas are, I should say, um, a 417 uh, working holiday visa, right. which is what I first came over on. Oh, yeah. yeah. And a uh, 462, which is a work and holiday visa for backpackers. Okay. So, um, again, I'm going to take this right back to the basic principles sure. for anyone out there who's considering a working holiday or is unfamiliar with the well, it worked for you. rules and regs. Oh, it most You're certainly still working. Did. <laughs> yeah, every day is a blessing. Um, so, if, if you plan to work in Australia, uh, you need a tax file number. 
obviously. Right. So um, your TFN is your personal reference number in the Australian tax system. Yep. So um, you, you can apply for a tax file number once you've um, obtained your work visa. When you come to start work, you have to give your employer your tax file number declaration form, which helps the employer work out how much tax needs to be withheld from your pay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your employer then checks if uh, you hold a visa 417 working holiday or 462. Okay, yeah. The working holiday. But you you really should, you know, disclose to make sure that everything's taxed correctly. So, so this is so they can withhold from yeah, working holiday visa holders pay okay yep Yep. so when you finish work um, you receive a payment summary showing how much you've earned and how much tax was withheld from the pay right Uh, so this information is then used to complete a tax return yep now working holiday makers are taxed a bit more than residents yes they they? most certainly are Uh, from the 1st of January 2017 um Working holiday makers are taxed from the very first dollar on a, a rate of 15%. Okay, so there's no tax-free threshold. Yeah, okay. correct. Correct. Oh, that's not good. I mean, that's the rules. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, so if, if we look at a number of examples uh, that I have prepared. Yep. Uh, the first one is, uh, shall we say, uh, Kiara lives in Belgium. Okay. And he's planning a working holiday in Australia. Lucky Kiara. Yeah, yeah. So in preparation for the trip, uh, Kiara needs to apply for a TFN, yep. uh, indicating that she's not an Australian resident for tax purposes, and she's granted this 417 visa before her arrival. Right. So on the 10th of January uh, 2017, uh, she starts working for Bob's Mango Farm in far north Queensland. Yep, yep. very nice. Yep, that'd be a good place um, to work. Yep. Free As, mangoes? Yes. <laughs> As part of the normal employment process, Kiara gives Bob the TFN declaration and tells him that she's a working holiday maker d- on d- this 417. So just one thing to jump in. I, I wasn't aware of this. So you have to apply for the 417 before you even yep, leave correct. the country? Correct. Your, your country. Okay. Yes. Right. Yep. yep. Um, so as Bob of Bob's Mango Farm is a registered employer with the ATO, yep. the first $37,000 of Kiara's income will be taxed at 15%. Right. Uh, so Kiara in this example, is paid weekly and earns $100 a day. So after five days of work, Steve, how much would she have earned? $500. Correct. <sighs> so from that, $75 is withheld, being 15%, oh, yeah. yep. and that's sent to the ATO. Um, when Kiara finishes working for Bob in April, uh, after earning a total of $6,000, uh, Kiara gets her payment summary, showing a total of $6,000, yep. and had 9000 tax withheld. Ta- taken away from yep. tax, okay. Yep. So then on the 1st of July, when Kiara comes to lodge her tax return, uh, indicating she is a non-resident, uh, she shows the income of $6,000, um, tax withheld of $900, and let's say she's uh, made $500 worth of deductions relating right. to the employment. After the return is processed, um, the notice of assessment will show that she has a taxable income of $5,500 and the tax would be $825. Yep. Um, as she's paid $900 in tax, she'll receive a nice tidy refund of $75. Oh, so there you go. Well, Don't spend it all at once. No, you can go out and have a big dinner for that. Yes. I wonder what her deductions would be. I wonder if there's mango picking gloves or uh, yeah. all this sun hats. Yeah, why not sun hats, sun cream, sunglasses? Sun, sun, yeah, yeah. All that. in the sun. <laughs> Okay. So then th- there are some key 
differences, you know, as we've already um, touched on with the first $18,200 free oh, for residents. Yep, yep. And um, you know, those who aren't um, residents, the working holiday makers pay tax from the very start. Right. So just another couple of examples here. Um, so Alice would be a German backpacker okay. on a 417 visa. And she earned $37,000 between 1st of January and the 30th of June. Right. So she'll pay 15% of uh, the income in tax. Like Kiara, 15%? Yes. Yep, yep, yep. So 15% of 37000 is 5500 Yes. Uh, and in this case, Alice will not pay the Medicare levy because she's not entitled to use the Medicare system. Ah, oh, right, not being a non-resident. Okay. Yep, yep. yep. And uh, is not entitled to the low-income tax offset as a foreign resident. Right. But then if we look at the same situation, uh, let's say Kate, uh, but she's an Australian resident, and the same $37,000. Oh, yeah. But uh, she gets the first $18,200 of her income tax free. Right, right. So she'll pay 19% tax on that income between $18,200 and $37,000. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I won't go through the numbers in detail because it's quite complicated without the whiteboard there. But, <laughs> but she would Does pay, it work out to be less tax? Yes, she would pay $3,572 okay. in tax. Uh, but in addition, she would also have to pay the Medicare levy oh, yeah. of 2%. Right. But she is entitled to the credit for the low-income tax offset yep. of $445. <clears throat> so in total... Kate would pay $3,867 in tax compared to Alice's 5550 Right, okay. So they the, get your money somehow. They get your money somehow, yes. but maybe not as much if you're a resident. Mm. Okay. Yep. Um, and I suppose there's one more uh, example that I should talk through, right. uh, which is kind of similar to uh, my experience all those all right. years ago. Yeah, yeah. It, so if we say Rachel is a working holiday maker who comes over from the UK... Uh, and her circumstances mean she is an Australian resident for the whole 16-17 uh, income year. Okay. How did she do that? She just did. Yep, just did. Just the magic. Yep, magic. <laughs> That's just the way these things work. Mm-hmm. So Rachel would be entitled to the tax rate threshold of $18,200. Yep. Uh, she would also be liable to pay the Medicare levy as Australia has a reciprocal health agreement with the UK. Yeah, okay. So that means oh, really? no oh. exemption yet. So when I arrived over here, I could go to the doctors and everything for, oh, that's handy. for free. Yeah. And, you know, all the Aussies that go the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go to the NHS for free. So well, that's yeah. got, to, got to work out that, yeah, that way. Exactly. I suppose it's, you can have dual citizenship. Oh, yes. So yep. if Rachel comes to Australia and stays here for a certain amount of time, she naturally just becomes a resident yep. for tax purposes. Okay, yep. oh, I see it. I see there it. you go. See, I understand more than, more than I think. Oh, there you go. Anyway. Yeah. So um, <laughs> so she earns, shall we say, $30,000 in the sixteen seventeen income year. Right. Um, yeah, the reason I am dating things sixteen seventeen rather than seventeen eighteen is yep. so we can examine that split of pre, um, pre-working holiday maker rates. Oh, yeah. So we can... Look yep, at this. I get it. Um, so let's say she earned $25,000 for the period 1 July 2016 to 31 December 2016, yep. which would have been the ordinary income, and then $5,000 for the period 1 January 2017 to 30 January 2017. Okay. Which is uh, the working holiday maker income. So Rachel will be taxed at 15% on the $5,000 earned as a working holiday maker. Right. So the first $5,000 for the tax three threshold is then used by the working holiday maker income, leaving $13,200 of the tax-free threshold. 
Okay, did you say that? Yep, yep. So the tax-free threshold applies to the $13,200 of ordinary income and is therefore taxed at 0%. It's, yep. Yeah. And then the remaining 11800 of the ordinary income is taxed at 19%. Hmm. So... Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yep. okay. So... From the, pre- the previous uh, period. Yep, yep. So uh, just going through it, um, again, I know it's hard to visualise without a board or well, people something. people will be taking notes, Yeah, yeah they could be. They could Unless be. in the car. Yep, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> um, so the working holiday maker income is taxed first, which is 15% of 5000 Right. Which is $750. The tax three threshold is reduced by the working holiday maker income. So that's 18200 less 5000 yep. is 13200 the ordinary income is then taxed at resident tax rates. So the 13200 left at the tax-free threshold, 0%, is $0. Right. And then the 11800 at 19% is $2,242. Okay. So then the total tax on taxable income is 2992 So that's the first lot from yep, the that's working holiday. Yep. $750. Yep. Zero for the ordinary income. Yep. And the nineteen percent, ninety percent of the eleven eight, which yep, is two thousand two hundred forty-two. I've took notes myself. Yep, your yep, note. There you go. <laughs> which is two thousand nine hundred ninety-two. Okay. And then on top of that, there'll be a two percent on the entire thirty thousand, which is the uh, medical. Oh, medical levy. Okay. Right. Uh, yep. There's yep. a dual uh, agreement in place. Yep. Okay. Who was paying that? Rachel. Yes. Correct. Okay. Got it. Now being. A resident mm-hmm. for a period of the time. Yep. Doesn't her employer have to put aside some super money? Correct. Super guarantee. Yep. Uh, employers are required to make super contributions on behalf of all eligible employees. Right. Which means she's got a little bit of super money sitting there. Yep. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So what if she decides to go back to the UK for for some funny reason? I yes. don't know why. But you know. Why would you want to? Well, me. the weather. The weather. Yeah. <laughs> It was nice weather in Windsor the other day. Yes, it was beautiful, it was, wasn't it? Anyway, um, so if, if if you do choose to go home, uh, you can apply to have the superannuation that's been paid to you as a departing Australian superannuation payment uh, or a DASP. Ah, yeah. Okay. So um, before you submit your application, you should check with your employer that they have paid all the super for you that they are required to do so. Right. Yep. Um, if it, it has been six months or more since you left Australia uh, and your visa has ceased to be in effect and you have not claimed the DASP, uh, the super fund will transfer your super money to the ATO as unclaimed money. So don't do that. Yeah, no, you want to get your hands on it as soon yeah, as possible. Yeah, um, yeah and you, you may be required to provide certain certified documents for your DASP claim. Right. Okay. Uh, so, you know, you need to get document certified to prove that it's you and then that the employer has put it aside and all that you should be able to get all that before you leave the job you'd think yep and um it's also possible that you can authorize someone to claim on your behalf in case you've uh, gone um you can nominate a tax agent in case in case you have to leave the country all of a sudden yeah (laughs) okay um a a tax agent with full registration or a conditional tax agent registration with the tpb or um any representative if you use a DASP paper form. Okay. But uh, I suppose the downside of getting this money paid out to you is that the uh, payment will be taxed at 65% when it's paid to you. So Why on earth that much? Them's the rules. (laughs) I suppose it's departing Australia's super payment, but they actually don't actually like to pay anyone that money. I'd rather see it sitting there, but anyway. 
Okay, how did we get here? Oh, from withholding. Yep. Okay, yep. that's good. And then we went to... A long and winding road, but we yeah, got there. Yeah, yeah, but it, it all ties in. Hopefully it's uh, of some help to some listener out there or mm-hmm. one of your clients. Um, okay, thanks so much again, David. Absolute pleasure, Steve. Uh, stay with us, listeners. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back, listeners. I'm Steve Burnham, back with Dave Edden. Um, hello, David. Hello. Um, and we're wrapping up this tax wrap podcast with our WTF, uh, wacky tax fact, of course. And now it's um, the uh, latest Royal Weddings barely a, a week old, so it's still, still in our, our minds. Um, I watched it, I will admit. How about you, David? Oh, I did. I was, you know, <laughs> in my, you know, Union Jack uh, <laughs> shirt and everything. But. Well, I, 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 I cooked dinner on a Saturday nights and I made a special sort of sort of English meal. Mm. Well, sort of. Uh, corned beef and cabbage and oh, mashed potato. Nice. Very nice. Vanilla slices to finish off, so yeah, it was nice. Anyway, it got me thinking, well, not then, but now, when I come back to um, tax and super Australia, speaking of things tax... Maybe a lot of people wonder, and I, I certainly do, does the Queen pay tax? Yes and no, ah, is the answer. One of those answers, yes and no. So, no, she she doesn't, or okay. she isn't required to lodge a tax return. Mm-hmm. However, as a, I don't know what you want to call it, as a gesture of goodwill, mm-hmm. or what you will, she makes a donation to the Treasury, right? Um, which would be an equivalent payment to the amount that it would have been if she had been required to pay tax. Okay. Sorry if that's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, yeah I see what um, you mean. So she is paying what she would be required to pay in tax. Were she paying tax? She's not required to pay it. Okay, that's so, nice. There you go. Yeah, that's good. So she just tips that into the coffer. Yep. Exactly. Into the common wheel. Yes. The common wealth, as it yes. were. Okay, that's amazing. Well, that's a, that's not a wacky tax fact. That's It's good to know, actually. Mm. Now, speaking of Megan, which we weren't, but we were, um, <laughs> she's been an American citizen. Working, paying her tax, her American tax, etc. Now she's uh, married into a, a prominent family it's in the a very UK. Prominent family. <laughs> um, what will change in her tax life? A fair bit. Okay. Actually. Yeah. Um, so, firstly, I suppose we should look at the fact that even though she has just become the Duchess of Sussex, mm-hmm. uh, she isn't going to become a UK citizen for a fair few years. Oh, yet. OK, I didn't know that. So, yeah, what she's on, uh, apparently, again, I, I'm not the insider on this, but she's apparently living in the UK on a family visa. Huh. Um, so, as a result of holding that visa, she needed to marry uh, Prince Harry uh, within six months of getting the visa. Hence ah, why it was hastily okay. arranged marriage oh uh, well that could have been yeah. a, another yeah, yeah, yeah. consideration yes yeah. all right um so this this family visa um becomes effective in two and a half year increments and you don't get granted a permanent residency until you've lived in the uk for five years right so she is not going to be a uk citizen until at least what's that 2023 so so she's still an american citizen until then Yes. She's not stateless. She's yes. American. Yeah. Okay. And even then, you know, she might become a dual citizen at ah. the time, so US and UK, which is where we get rather interesting. Okay, the, go uh, on. Tax. Do, do tell. So um, if she does become a dual citizen, yep. uh, Meghan Markle will have to continue filing uh, tax returns each year in the US right with the IRS yep. um, 
if she has more than uh, 300,000 US dollars in assets at any point during the year, yep. and you imagine she would, right. given uh, where she's married, yep. she will have to file a very specific form that uh, you on which you have to detail foreign assets. So, for example... Uh, when I say foreign assets, I'm talking about from a US perspective now. Oh, uh, okay, from the US perspective. Yeah, okay. so which could yep. include foreign trusts, which would be... Could be, the, All the very money possible. that they're getting from the... Uh, Mm. from the royal family mm. Gosh. Um, yeah and on top of this uh, she will be paying taxes on uh, any income she makes you know regardless of whether she uh, regardless of where she earns it so, so so just i mean this this is not a contentious point but she's <laughs> earning getting income from the british country mm-hmm. and she's going to have to be paying american taxes on that income? Correct. Wow. So, and, you know, th- there's lots of other things to consider with that because, I mean, although she's um, she's no longer in, was it Suits? Suits, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she'll still be getting some, uh, I suppose, commission. Is, th- is that the right word? Uh, or oh, from, from, from that reruns network. And, yep. uh, you know, the sales of uh, DVDs. Yep. Um, so that will be income. But, again, that, that will pale in comparison to what she's... Um, potentially receiving from the royal family. Right. So um, just something I've found here. It says that apparently the um, annual allowance that Prince Harry shares with uh, William and Kate... Oh, yeah. uh, That comes to £3.5 million in 2017. So does that get divided four ways? Well, we don't know. Yeah, we we don't know. But again, it could be said that, you know, Meghan might receive her own allowance or she could just be dependent off of Harry. Right. So that could be... um, They could afford it. mm. And then on top of that, uh, Prince Harry earns money from a $1 billion portfolio of investment properties uh, that funds his family's public and charitable activities. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... um, that's interesting. So, does he fund like you know Invictus Games and all that sort yeah. of thing through that? That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. good okay. on him. Yeah, um, and then just jumping back to uh, America for a second, mm-hmm. uh, they have a thing called the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, which which is going to affect uh, Harry and Meghan. For you know, as, as long as she uh, remains a U.S. citizen, she has to file the statement of foreign financial assets, yep. which I touched on earlier. Yep. Um, this is because she's going to have an interest in foreign financial assets worth more than the threshold, which is either $200,000 if she takes the married filing separately status, right, or $400,000 if they file jointly. Hmm. So I think it's safe to assume that her share of the royal's family assets won't come in below no. the threshold. No, I think that threshold is a, a mere trifle, hmm. as they say. Okay. So the, the, the only real way for uh, Meghan and the... Um, royal family to you know get themselves out of this situation is for uh, is, is for Meghan Markle to renounce or Meghan, Meghan Windsor yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If, uh, to renounce her US citizenship oh she can do that before the time's up or she has to wait the five years what were you saying how many years what was yeah, it? five five but um, you know even if she did renounce her US citizenship she would still have to report any US source income from the acting residuals uh, so it's it's not, yep. it's not that straightforward. No, no, no. Um, and and just some statistics. Um, nice. Uh, according to Celebrity Net Worth, uh, it says that Meghan Markle's net worth is around five million dollars and earns around four hundred and fifty thousand dollars annually. 
Okay. Front suits. So. Oh, really? Yep, there'll be a fair bit of um, money coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay. There you go. That's, that's an amazing tax fact. Okay. Um, and very, very current and timely. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much, David. And uh, I think myself and our listeners learned a lot from that session of uh, this week's WTF, mm. Wacky Tax Fact. I do try. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much, David. Thank you, Steve. Thanks Thank for you, being David. with us, listeners. Please tune in again next time.